This morning's reading is Psalms 19, 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden, hidden from its heat. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Leewood campus. Uh, if I'm a stranger, I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, I want to welcome you here today. I serve on the teaching team at Christ Community, and uh, I'm so grateful that uh, our church family gives us a break. So I had a wonderful sabbatical, and uh, people have asked me what it's like to get back in the saddle this week. Um, I'm doing fine, but our golden doodle dog Harley's not. Because uh, Harley and I were nap buddies this summer, afternoon naps, and I think he's missing it as much as I am. So, uh, but Liz and I had a joy of uh, visiting and worshiping with other campuses across the, the city this summer, and it was really a delight to see all that God is doing uh, in our larger church family around the city. So again, good morning. Welcome. It's good to be back. Uh, I love our campuses, but I always say, uh, having been at Leewood a long time, there's no place like home. So I'm grateful to be here. Well, fake news is big news these days. Have you noticed? Now, as frustrating as fake news is, and uh, as significant as it sort of seems to be these days, especially as it fuels greater doubt and cynicism in our culture today, really, the greatest challenge is not just fake news, it's faulty ideas. Fake news asks us the question, how do we know what's true, right? Who can we really believe and why? We ask these questions. But it is the faulty ideas underlying our cultural thought that is most concerning. Whether these faulty ideas are on Twitter or Facebook or in a song lyric or on a movie screen, ideas that we hear every day form a cultural narrative. What is a cultural narrative and why is it so important? Cultural narratives bring a kind of, let's just say, plausibility and coherence to our often very complex and confusing world. Cultural narratives stitch together a story we live in and live by. Another way of thinking about it maybe is that Cultural narratives are like a compass or a GPS, an intuitive guide that guides us through life because we all try to make sense of the world and sense of our lives. Questions, who we are, where we come from, what is the meaning of our lives, how should we live, occupy all of our lives. The reality is that we all live into a story, but the big question for each one of us this morning is, is our story really worth living. This morning we are beginning a new series, as Pastor Andrew mentioned, exploring some of the more, let's just say, common cultural narratives of our time. And 
comparing them with the biblical narrative. Now, regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey or your journey of faith, it is our hope as a teaching team that this series will evoke many thoughts and many, many questions and many musings and reflections on your part. So throughout the series, we are going to encourage you to engage with us uh, with this text number on the screen. So I encourage you to take advantage of that during this entire series. So before we begin, let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and we pray that you would give us a faith with humble confidence, a faith of hopeful realism, and a faith of joyful expectation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the Grammy Award winner and songwriter and artist, Drake, maybe you've heard of him, introduced to our broader culture a very important word you hear a lot today. It is actually an acrostic. It is the word YOLO. It comes from his hit rap song, Motto. YOLO, in case you're wondering, I had to find this out. YOLO stands for you only live once. Now, Drake's lyrics go like this. You ready for his lyrics? <laughs> you only live once. That's the motto. And we about it every day, every day, every day. Drake's song is really hard hitting. It is really, really vulgar. And it's unimaginably misogynistic. Millions listen to it. Now, in case you wonder, I didn't have a Drake conversion in my sabbatical. <laughs> I'm sure he's a nice person in many ways, but uh, his song is a harbinger of cultural thought. Drake is tapping into, with great creativity, a, a popular cultural narrative. And that is simply this, that we live in a closed universe. That the natural world is all there is. Therefore, grab all you can when you can. Now, in his award-winning book, one I highly recommend, but it's a rather thick tome, about 900 pages if you're ready for that. It's one of the finest books written in the last several years describing our world. It's entitled A Secular Age, and it's written by Charles Taylor, a philosophy professor at McGill University. Charles Taylor, in his book, his outstanding book, captures in a more refined philosophical way what music artist Drake is saying in a more vulgar way. That our dominant cultural narrative is increasingly secular in its orientation. That this life, this life, is all there is. Charles Taylor has labeled this YOLO culture the imminent frame. That reality that makes it increasingly implausible to believe in God in our culture. Now, Taylor describes this cultural shift, and I'm going to read a longer quote because it is so brilliant. So read with me carefully, listen carefully as he describes this massive shift in our world. The change I want to define and trace is one which takes us from a society in which it is virtually impossible not to believe in God, to one in which faith, even for the staunchest believer, is one human possibility among others. I may find it inconceivable that I would abandon my faith, 
But there are others, including, possibly, some very close to me, whose way of living I cannot, in all honesty, just dismiss as depraved or blind or unworthy, who have no faith, at least in God or the transcendent, Belief in God is no longer axiomatic. That means unquestionable or evident. There are alternatives. And this will also likely mean that at least in certain milieu or times, it may be hard to sustain one's faith. Now notice what he says. There will be people who feel bound to give it up, even though they mourn its loss. There will be many others to whom faith never even seems an eligible possibility. Charles Taylor, in his brilliance, captures the mood of Western culture. It's important for us to grasp that this imminent frame, this YOLO cultural narrative, like all cultural narratives, rests on some very big faith assumptions. Whether you consider yourself religious or irreligious, or agnostic, or somewhere in between, the truth is, is that we are all people of faith. We all build our lives around some basic assumptions of reality that cannot be proven with philosophical certainty. They require leaps of faith. But are we willing to be honest and examine the underlying faith assumptions of the story we are living our lives by. As Charles Taylor reminds us, the popular culture narrative of the imminent frame is indeed plausible. It is. Many very smart and intelligent people believe that is the best story to live in. And I do believe that rap artist Drake is right in one sense, That there truly is goodness in our natural world, the world of time and space. That there is sensual pleasure to enjoy and real goodness of food and drink and real meaning in relationships. My question is, is Drake's YOLO story the best one? Does it lead to human flourishing? Is it worth living? I believe there is another story that leads to human flourishing and is truly worth living. It is the Christian story. Now, while the Christian story is not unassailable, it is, in my view, truly unsurpassable. So let's take a look. Let's begin in this series where the Christian story begins. So if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the first book in the Old Testament, Genesis 1.1. This is God's word. In the beginning... God created the heavens and earth. This morning, as we reflect on the first verse of the Bible, I'd like us to reflect on three compelling reasons, if you're thinking or taking notes, three compelling reasons why the Christian story is unsurpassable, why it's worth living. First, the Christian story makes sense. Secondly, the Christian story fits our experience. And third, the Christian story offers hope. First, the Christian story makes sense. It's important to grasp that although Genesis 1-1 has 10 English words in its translation, the Hebrew text has seven words, which is the mark of perfection in Hebrew, of a perfect God and perfect creation. I want you to notice how, again, it's brilliantly arranged. The idea underneath this is asserting something that has tons of implications for your life, my life, and the world. 
Genesis 1-1 asserts that a creator God outside of time and space brought the material universe into existence within time and space. Now Moses, most likely, and I believe the author of Genesis, began with a massive faith assumption in the story. When we grasp the contemporary ancient Middle Eastern setting where Moses wrote anywhere from 1500 to 2000 BC, depending on your view, we see that Moses is challenging right at the beginning the cultural dominant narrative of his time. Moses' time, the common dominant cultural narrative where there were many rather polyistic puny gods made in human uh, images that we could manipulate as humans for fertility or for productivity or something like that. But here in Genesis chapter 1, Moses anchors the Christian story in an eternal, intelligent, personal, uncaused cause who he gives a Hebrew name, Elohim. For Moses, as well as each of us, the assertion that a creator God exists outside of time and space and is responsible for the world we live in is indeed a big leap of faith. No question. But I want to suggest to you, it is not an implausible leap of faith. Why? Because a faith assumption of a creator God makes good sense. That a creator God exists answers the most basic and fundamental logical assumptions that we ask about life. One of the most popular TED Talks ever given by its number of hits is Simon Sinek's. Simon Sinek gave a TED Talk to organizational leaders about leadership. The title was Start With Why. It became a New York Times bestselling book. I recommend it to you. There's a lot of insight here on leading. But Sinek makes this point. He says, but why, the question why, he's saying the question why is what we have to ask, not just the how and the what. He says, by why I mean that it is your purpose or belief. Why does your company exist? Why do you get out of bed every morning? Maybe you're asking that question. And why should anybody care? What Cynic is saying to business leaders and organizational leaders about effective companies is really important for us to ask of our own lives. The big why question is the most important question upon which your story rests. And this is where Moses begins the Christian story. The big why is where he begins. He answers in plausible ways why the most fundamental question of human logic, why is there something rather than nothing? Do you think about that? And then, how could something come from nothing? Or if we want to press more into the hows, how did inorganic matter become organic matter? How did the most simple elements become the complex? How did the non-intelligent become the intelligent? How do we account for irreducible complexity we see in the world? How do we account for our existence? Why me? Why do we exist? How do we account for human consciousness? for beauty, for goodness in the world? These are really important why questions. In Genesis 1.1, in seven perfect Hebrew words, 
satisfactorily answers those foundational questions by pointing to an eternal, intelligent, personal creator God. Now, you may be saying, and I understand that, if I get it, I don't buy that assumption built into Genesis 1.1. But if you build your story on a faith assumption that no creator God exists, then you must plausibly answer these foundational questions. If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? If there's no God, how did the inorganic become organic? How did the simple organism become irreducibly complex? How do you account for the amazingly precise fine-tuning of the universe for life on earth? How do you account for human personality, consciousness, for art, for music, for beauty, for goodness, and sacrificial love in the world? See, ever since Charles Darwin wrote his groundbreaking book in 1859 called The Origin of the Species. It was a longer title, but we'll hold it to that. Charles Darwin offered another plausible cultural narrative, right? A godless universe. And he made it intellectually plausible by a causal explanation of what? Great amounts of time, the mechanism of chance and random mutation, along with the survival of the fittest as the explanation of all reality. In the 19th century, to that point, many, many people, the wisest people and uh, many academic settings saw the universe as eternal, not having a beginning. Well, science has helped us say the universe has a beginning, right? And Darwin postulated a great amount of time, but over time, as this narrative has become more dominant, unimaginable amounts of time are necessary. Not only that, now that the universe we know has existed, which is right out of Genesis 1-1, from a, had a beginning, now the postulation of those who hold to an imminent frame is that there are multi-universes, and ours is just one that happens over billions and zillions and quadrillion, whatever, time. The dominant cultural macroevolutionary narrative has big of faith assumptions. Don't miss that. Intelligent people hold it. But what are the assumptions? Multi-universes, unimaginable amounts of time. But if you follow logic back, something came from nothing. So what caused the beginning of the universe? How do we understand the fine-tuning for life? Tomorrow, Andrew gave you permission to leave your work. It's really cool. I mean, I think we'll take a break from teaching team. We're going to go out and look at the sky like everybody else, right? The solar eclipse. But as you experience it, hopefully, and we won't have clouds, we hope, right? But it's a reminder that the Earth's orbit is precisely positioned in just such a way that life is possible on our planet. While God's non-existence is a plausible foundation for a cultural narrative. Many of my intelligent friends who hold this view, but I don't buy it. It's a big leap of faith. A big leap of faith. I believe God's existence is a much wiser leap of faith and makes more intellectual sense. See, what I want you to grasp is that embracing the Christian faith, whether it's in the first century or the 21st century, you do not have to put your brain on the shelf or your heart on the shelf. The Christian story makes good sense. See, the most foundational decision your story rests on, however you make sense of the world, is did God make us 
or did we make God? How you answer that question sets the trajectory of your entire life and your ethics. See, the first reason the Christian story is unsurpassable is because it logically is consistent and it makes good sense. It answers satisfactory and I believe compellingly the big why questions we all ask. The second reason is the Christian story fits our experience, doesn't it? Our daily experiences. I know we've you know, been on sort of a philosophical platitude here first in this message, but let's just get down to everyday life. The Christian story resonates how we live life. There are so many things I could say here, but let me suggest three things. First, the Christian story explains the goodness and joy we experience in living in God's world every day. Rap artist Drake gets part of the Genesis story right, doesn't he? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we see God taking a barren, desolate, uninhabitable planet and making it beautiful, pleasant, and teeming with life. After each day of creation, it is as if Genesis says God is giddy with delight. The master architect says, wow, this is good. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, we read, And out of the ground the Lord God made this spring every tree that is noticed pleasant to sight and good for food. God took a meaningless an inhabitable creation and made it good. And God filled it with his beauty and joy and pleasure and meaning. God is anything but a cosmic killjoy. If you read Genesis carefully, this beautiful creation was created as our playground. The created world God made was made for us to enjoy in multi-sensory ways. So this week, when you enjoy a good meal with your friends, when you relish the beauty of a work of art, when you cheer on the royals or chiefs, right? <laughs> when you close that business deal you've been working on, or you experience delightful intimacy in marriage, these things point to the Christian story. They make sense. They fit our experience. Secondly, the Christian story helps us explain how we experience evil in the world and our visceral reaction to it. The presence of evil and suffering in the world is a challenge for every cultural narrative. The Christian story does not give us exhaustive answers to deep questions. We have with this. I have them. But it gives us satisfactory ones. That you and I are rightly sickened. Sickened. That the recent murder of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville by white supremacists points to the Christian story. That we are sickened in all the murderous ambushing of our police officers. For example, Clinton, Missouri police officer Gary Michael points to the Christian story. We know in our hearts that individual and systemic racism is evil and murder is evil and injustice is evil. We know that. Why? Why do we feel that so deeply? Because our experience tells us we do not live in an atheistic, Darwinian, dog-eat-dog -dog world. We live in a created moral world where there is woven into the fabric of all reality, good and evil and right and wrong. As the Genesis story continues, we encounter a God who is not only personal and intelligent and brilliant and powerful, one who is moral, who creates a moral universe. It was C.S. Lewis who converted from atheism, that Oxford professor, who in his classic defense of Christianity makes the point of the inescapable sense we have of right and wrong, of a moral law that points us to a moral lawgiver. 
And if you buy into a YOLO story of a closed universe, of an imminent frame with no God, ultimately there is no transcendent basis for us to say that anything is right or wrong or good or evil. We have no logical foundation for that. Just sentimentality. Syrupy sentimentality. Russian writer Dostoevsky said it brilliantly, better than anyone I know in the 20th century. He says, without God, everything is permissible. Might makes right. That's the option. Third, the Christian story explains why we pursue meaning in our lives, doesn't it, friends? If there is no God, if the world is all there is, if this is just the imminent frame, if it's just the YOLO world, ultimately your life, my life, everything we're about, everything we do is purposeless and meaningless. The great existential philosophers like Camus and Sartre were the most honest when they said the answer is suicide without God. Genesis chapter 1 presents a different picture, doesn't it? You and I are beings who have intrinsic meaning, purpose, and worth. We were created with eternity in mind. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we read these words, right? So central, we're going to unpack them more next week. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. The Hebrew word for image, salam, means connection and reflection. As creatures, we were created to uniquely reflect God in all that we are and do and to connect with others in intimate relationships. That is why we feel so deeply longing for safe, intimate relationships with others, why loneliness is one of the deepest wounds of the soul. It was Holocaust survivor and psychologist Viktor Frankl, who in his 20th century work, one of the most important and brilliant works of the entire 20th century, Man's Search for Meaning, points to the story, the Christian story. He makes the case that as humans, we are meaning-seeking creatures, and we primarily seek meaning through two things, relationships we have and the work we do. Viktor Frankl's life, work, resonates powerfully with the Genesis story and our daily experience. Each of us longs, isn't it true, for meaningful relationships. We long to be loved, to live purposeful lives, to make a contribution to the world. This deep longing in your heart and mind can only be explained by the Christian story. It makes no sense in the other narratives. It's just an illusion in other narratives. Without God, there is no ultimate meaning in our lives, in our world, without God, everything is permissible. I believe the Christian story is unsurpassable. Why? Because it makes sense. It fits our experience. And third, it gives hope. It offers hope. In the midst of our broken lives and fractured nation and all the conflict and all the stuff that's going on and all the evil in our time, something deep cries out, doesn't it? Like, this not ought to be. There's something more to life than this. Does it not crowd in our hearts? Christian story answers this longing of the soul with, yes, there's more. Life is not just about the here and now, but also the then and there. We were created, you were created with eternity in mind, and you have an eternal destiny. The biblical writer of Ecclesiastes says there's a time for everything in beautiful poetic language, but then he gets to the big crux of the matter in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He, God, has made everything beautiful in his time. And then he says, don't miss this, he has put eternity in everyone's heart. Your heart and mine. This Christian story not only offers hope for the future, but hope here and now.
Christian story tells us why the world is broken with sin. And how God decided not to obliterate it in Genesis 6. He makes the decision and he launches a plan of rescue and redemption. And he's going to make it all right one day. The Christian story unfolds in the Bible. We read that God is going to send a redeemer to restore his broken creation. And John's gospel in the New Testament echoes Genesis 1. You must not miss this, the connection. Elohim, the Greek logos, points to Jesus. Jesus being the creator and redeemer. Listen to the words of John 1 that echo at Genesis. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was Speaking of Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Good news story, the hopeful news story of the Bible is that Jesus, the eternal creator God, the son of God, enters time and space. He takes on human flesh on a rescue mission to restore God's broken world, to restore you and me. And Jesus comes to us and me and our shame and our guilt and our sorrows and our doubts and our perplexities and our sufferings and offers us his grace of forgiveness and new creation life. The good news of the gospel offers true hope for anyone who places their trust in Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And Paul will say that nothing, if you know Jesus, if you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you embrace the gospel, that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. And that all things work together. The mountains, the valleys, the perplexities, the doubts work together for good, ultimately. The Christian story begins with original creation and it ends with a new creation. Genesis 1 looks to Revelation 21, the last book of the Bible. <clears throat> John gives us a glimpse of the new heavens and new earth. He says, I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven on earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The Christian story explains a broken and tragic past, but also a transformed present and a hopeful future in Christ. See, faith, we all live by it. Meaning, we all seek it. Hope, we all long for it. In Christ, we find it. The Christian story is worth living. It is unsurpassable. Why? It makes sense. It fits life and it offers hope. If you're struggling with doubt about the Christian story and you may be, whether you're newer to the faith or you've been a Christian a long time, doubt is a part of the journey. Let me encourage you to join us in this series and think with us and pray with us and to consider both heart and mind and hand the many merits of faith in Christ. You may be here this morning and consider yourself a Christian or you may not. We love all who come and engage with us. You're welcome here. Let me ask you an important question. Are you willing to not only question your faith, but to question your doubts? I want to suggest this morning, and we'll unpack more, three books, if you want to look at three books that I think are excellent in these areas with different dynamics. First is The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Tim focuses more on the logical sense of the story of Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote Mere Christianity, a classic. He focuses on the experiential sense of the Christian story. But one of the sleepers, I think, is one of the best books written on why the Christian story makes sense is a subtle one, written by a Harvard professor named Armand Nicoli Jr. He 
It's called The Question of God, and it compares the atheistic story of Sigmund Freud and what his life was like and how his, what his end was like. And the theistic or godly story of C.S. Lewis, he brings those two lives together. It's one of the most compelling apologetics for the Christian story I've ever read. Lived out in two human lives with vastly different lives. This week, whether you are in the story and are struggling to continue to believe it, or you're outside the story looking in, pondering it, wondering, I'm going to ask you something. Will you slow down and be attentive? Be attentive to what's around you. So we often hear the phrase that there's barrenness and busyness. That's true. And I'm one of the guilty ones. But busyness is not only leads to barrenness of soul, it leads to blindness of eyes and ears. So will you slow down and become more attentive? I'm going to ask you two questions. You might want to write these down in your heart or think about this week. First, will you look for patches of God light around you? One of my favorite places is the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. And this planetarium and museum shows the brilliance of the Hubble telescope and the greatest telescopes looking into the vastness of the universe. Above it is the quote from 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant. If you've read Kant, you know he was a great skeptic. Kant said these, this is his words right above it. Two things astound me. The sky above me and the moral law within me. What was Kant saying? The wonder that comes from looking above and within should cause us to contemplate our creator. As creator God, he has left fingerprints all over, all over our world. Will we open our eyes to see his brilliant handiwork? Maybe in the birth of a son or daughter or grandson or daughter. I remember when our two children were born, Schaefer and Sarah. It was like an out-of-body experience for me. It wasn't for Liz, but it was for me. <laughs> Have you sensed the amazing wonder of a birth of a child or a grandchild? During my sabbatical, I had the opportunity to spend some time at a place I had never been, and I wanted to be the Oregon coast, the rugged Oregon coast. My bride and I were staying for a week on this condo with this beautiful panoramic view of the rugged coast. And each night, the sunset was brilliant, but what I just love is the morning when the sea eagles, I had never seen osprey before, faced into the westerly prevailing winds and hovered 150 feet above the ocean, and all of a sudden, in perfect grace, drove, drove straight down and got their breakfast. It was a work of art. It was a sense of wonder and beauty that stunned me. The natural world points us to the beauty and brilliance of our creator every day if our eyes and ears are open to see it. I'm sure many of you are going to observe the solar eclipse. I hope you do. Whatever happens. But will you, will you allow this once-in-a-lifetime experience to nurture wonder in your heart of the God who orchestrated a universe and a solar system with such stunning precision? Will you taste the goodness of God in your life when you're hanging out this week with your friends and enjoying time with them? Will you see God in that? When you're enjoying a wonderful meal with your family, when you're enjoying a perfect night at Arrowhead Stadium or Kauffman Stadium or a symphony, will you sense God there? Will you see his fingerprints? Secondly, will you listen to your heart longings? Will you listen to your heart? The deepest longings in our heart for intimacy, for love, for joy, for safety, for empathy, for meaning, for beauty, for pleasure, we go, for creativity, for integrity, for good work, accomplishment, is not there to set you up for despair. 
or cynicism. They are echoes of a loving God who is wooing you to himself and to a glorious future with him. Triune God of such intimacy and love, it takes our breath away. A God of unimaginable joy who loves you beyond belief and sent Christ for you and welcomes those who trust Christ into his eternal life. You were created with that in mind. While we get a taste of these longings in this temporal life, they are just appetizers of what is coming in eternity. So let's get down to your week. Tomorrow morning probably will happen. Maybe you're struggling finding joy in your life, in your closest relationships, in your work, or the season of retirement. Or maybe you're feeling quite bummed out about getting back to school, syllabus shock or whatever it is. Maybe your job this week is really difficult and difficult decisions await you. Will you allow the deepest longing for joy in your heart to lead you to the one who can give you unimaginable joy in the midst of your difficult circumstances? Not only now, but for all eternity. It's not that our deep heart longings are wrong. It's they're pointed in the wrong direction. Will we point them to the greatest lover of our souls? See, the quality and significance of our lives are determined by the story in which we find ourselves in. And I want to suggest to each one of you, with humility and passion and love, Christian story is unsurpassable. There's nothing like it. What story will you live by? What story will you live in? What story will you embrace? One of my favorite contemporary Christian songs these days is sung and written by Francesca Batticelli. Batticelli has written a song called Write Your Story. Many of you have probably heard it if you listen to the radio or love this song. And it's her prayerful words that I want to pray as we close. Let us pray. Author of hope, maker of the stars, let me be your work of art. Write your story. Write your story on our hearts.